I want to land this series with this message that we've been on, Understanding Sowing and Reaping. And the title of my talk today is Expect to Reap. Expect to Reap. What we've been learning, and if you've been around the body of our church for any amount of time, we walk through series, and this is just one of them where we've been understanding sowing and reaping. And what we've been learning is that sowing and reaping, this principle of sowing and reaping, finds its way throughout the totality of Scripture. Some people call it a, a covenantal theme through Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, we find this principle of sowing and reaping working itself through. And I just want to show you that, give a quick overview of that, you'll see it in Genesis 8.22 where it says, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. In essence, in Genesis, Genesis 8, there will be times of seed time and harvest. It goes on, we go on to learn that your seeds, our seeds, are our thoughts, our actions, our time, and our resources, our material gain. And we find that in, even in Job 4.8, again, Old Testament, I, as I've observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. We see it again, sowing and reaping. Then we find Jesus talking about it in the Gospels. In Luke, we find 6.38. Give and you will receive. A large quantity pressed together, shaken down, and running over will be put into your pocket. The standards you use for others will be applied to you. Same principle. You give and you'll reap at a time. Now the Apostle Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, same principle. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Do you see that throughout Scripture? Okay, and the responsibility of a healthy gospel-centric church is to teach the totality of Scripture. And now we find, though, this principle at work in a narrative in the Bible where we see sowing and reaping taking place. And what you find is that the nation of Israel were experiencing a famine very severe due to their sin. Famine in the land. Hard to come by resources, food, and all of the sort. And there was a prophet Elijah that God sustains during this famine. He keeps them by a brook. And it says a raven fed him at different points of the time. And I want you to see something, though, that even in the midst of famine, God still can make provision for you. So there was a famine in the land, but God's anointed at the time, Elijah, he's allowing, he's receiving the provision of God, even in the midst of famine. And now God gives them different marching orders, and that's where we're going to jump right into the different marching orders. And you're going to see, here's a few truths we'll learn from this story. And this first truth is this, as we're going to learn the marching orders Elijah gets, belief drives behavior. What you believe drives your behavior. In fact, psychologists say if you continue to do something that you don't believe is proper, you'll be at odds with yourself. And that's where all types of confusion comes in. What we learn is principle, belief drives behavior and informs what you do. And now Elijah receives 
this marching order from the Lord in 1 Kings 17.7. I'm going to read the passage. We're going to learn some things. It says this. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, speaking of Elijah. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town's gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me please a piece of bread. Verse 12. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Do you see where her mindset was? There's famine in the land. I don't have much to give you, Elijah. I'm just gathering this last couple meals before I perish. Elijah said to her in verse 13, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you've said. But first, here's the key, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. As a pastor, you get excited when a text preaches itself. We learn something here about belief informing and driving our behavior. Elijah receives God's guidance, and at that point, Elijah had enough interaction with God to know when he speaks, obey. And he goes on, now the Lord tells him to go to Zarephath, which is, is very powerful because when you understand geographically, Zarephath was eight miles away from the brook where he was. There was no Uber he can take. There was no horse and carriage and buggy waiting for him. He had to go eight miles upon the word of the Lord in the midst of a famine. I want you to see how serious that is. Some of us don't come to church if a little rain hit the ground. Never mind eight miles in a famine. That's tough. So I mean, don't, if, it, if the shoe fits, kick it to somebody else. Give it to the person next to you. What I mean is, look at this obedience and, and how it may sound strange to Elijah going through this. You want me to go eight miles in a famine. But again, his belief, God's the authority, informs his behavior, I obey. So he goes. He takes God at face value. And he, he expects the reality that, Lord, if you said do it, then you're going to provide for me when I get there. I don't understand all of it. I don't know the how, but I know to obey. So he goes. And in the same way, church, our belief in certain areas, and by the way, 
contextually, we're dealing with resources because he's telling him to go. Why? So he can provide for resource, for gain, for nutrition, for food, for material. There was a material blessing. It just wasn't a spiritual principle. I want you to know healthy Christianity understands that the gospel is holistic. It impacts you physically, spiritually, emotionally. And so now there's a material need he has, which is to get food, and he tells him to go. Now he goes, we need to make sure that what we believe about God is accurate when it comes to our material gain. We need to avoid the trap. There's a trap when it comes to resources and Christianity, even in our day. And I want to show you the difference when you avoid the trap between a prosperity gospel and a poverty gospel. What do you mean by that? Because nowadays, there's a way people are interpreting the prosperity that, that this is how it's supposed to be for the Christian. And I'm going to show you we can swing a pendulum either way when understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here is one of the pendulums you'll see. There's a trap in our theology, what we believe about God. You'll see this. The prosperity gospel makes you believe you're entitled to much. You see this? I'm a king's kid. I deserve God's best. Uh-uh. I'm going to get it because I'm a king's kid. This is how, and you could take a truth of scripture. Yes, we're a child of the king. But to think that, not that God's grace and mercy reigns on us, but to think I earn this, I'm entitled. You can't tell me otherwise is unhealthy theology. I'm never going to go through anything. Why? Because I'm a king's kid. I'm protected. Just this week. Real powerful illustration came forward through Nick Foles. Nick Foles, who was a star quarterback for the Eagles, he gets picked up by the Jaguars. He gets injured very early on. He was supposed to be the star to bring the, this football team to the next level. And they asked him about, hey, how are you dealing with the injury? Do you feel bad? And all this other stuff. He's been an out, outspoken Christian from day one. And, and he said many great things, but I quote this when it came to his understanding of the prosperity gospel. I quote Nick Foles says, I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. I believe if you read the word of God and you understand it, there are trials along the way, but they equip your heart to be who you are today. He said, I don't believe it's always going to be easy for me. I reject that. I know that God is with me in the midst of the trial, though. And he's more interested in equipping who I am for the mission he has me on. Powerful. It was all over ESPN and everything. So I'm trying to show you that's the, now you can swing the pendulum. Like, you're right, pastor, prosperity gospel is not the heart of the Lord. Then we think of the poverty gospel, which means you're entitled to little. Opposite now. Opposite extreme is I'm undeserving of anything significant. God can't bless me materialistically. I'm undeserving. I don't deserve it. I just, you know, poverty is what God has spoken over my life. And I just need to take that. That's the swing of the pendulum. We got to be middle ground understanding context. Here's another thing the prosperity gospel trap is, is this. It's you lack discipline, a lack of discipline. With the prosperity gospel, we can often think that we don't have to budget. We don't have to live under our means. Why? Because God's always just going to show up on time. He's always going to take care of me. I can live sloppily with my money. Now, some of us don't verbalize that, but our bank accounts show it. Amex showed it. MasterCard called us. 
You, you understand? Now, you may think, right, that's not me. No, we, we'll, we'll take, oh, prosperity. God's going to take care of me so we can just be flipping. Keep up with the Joneses. Keep swiping and swiping and swiping. We always withdraw at the bank. We never deposit. That's it. We just withdraw. Give me more. Give me more. And that's a lack of discipline. But then here's the swing of the pendulum. Poverty gospels, you lack destiny. There's a lack there. That because of the circumstances of my birth and how I grew up and I came from an impoverished background, I need to walk in this as well. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. Prosperity gospel says this. You have wrong priorities. Sometimes that means my priority, even as a Christian, is for material gain, to be blessed, to have more money and get more. I want more, and, and I'm just going to go after all these financial things. You're, you have very little concern for the Great Commission. You're just trying to make your commission great. And so it makes a swing of pendulum to think all I'm going to pursue in this life is not God's mission but the gospel of comfort. What makes me more comfortable? Again, the swing of the pendulum on the other side is wrong perspective. In your mind, the poverty gospel, the only way to be godly is to be poor. We all have this perspective. Then a person that believes in the poverty gospel, we're all called to sell our things and just go do life in an impoverished neighborhood. And I'm not opposed. I've known people that have done that. But let me tell you something. When you look at the council of scripture, all the disciples, there were very much different financial backgrounds. Some of the disciples were business owners, so on and so forth. It's not just, oh, only the impoverished know Jesus. I know a lot of poor people who don't care about Jesus. And I know a lot of godly rich people. So it's not that. Lastly, another swing of the pendulum, the prosperity gospel fuels greed. All I want is more, while the poverty gospel fuels grief. I can never get out of this situation. See, Elijah had a healthy understanding about God. And what we believe about God dictates how we understand and walk in obedience with God. Garbage in, garbage out. Bad theology, bad living. And so what I'm saying is we need to understand that the God we serve, he can cause riches. It's like with Job, he gives and he takes away. But whatever it is, I know God has working it out for my good that I grow in the character of Christ Jesus. So we know that it's not poverty that makes you godly or riches that make you you godly. Money is amoral. It has no morality connected to it. One of the biggest lies is money is the root of all evil. That's not in the Bible. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. What you love is what you'll go after. But if you go after God, everything else will fall into alignment. That's a healthy theology on money. There's nothing wrong with being healthy and practicing healthy financial habits. Nothing wrong. It's biblical. It says a wise man will store up riches for generations to come. It's biblical to think of the next generation and not spend all your money on yourself. And so we avoid the trap of what we believe about God affects behavior. Elijah avoids that trap. He avoids the trap of prosperity or poverty. He's just, hey, God said go. We out. That's it. I'm gone. I'm going. I'm on my way. 
And now we, we read the story, so it gets a little rich as the story unfolds. Elijah gets sent to a widow. And now if I'm going to unpack that a little bit. But what you find is that the widow is immediately gripped by fear when she sees Elijah, who represents the man of God, who would have been well-known. He would have been well-known. It's a very similar. The prophets weren't always liked, but they were well-known. It's kind of like a celebrity. Many people knew who they were. Many people understood the prophets. And so... So she would have seen this prophet and probably thinking, oh, man, he's probably got a word for me. He's going to get out of here. And he's like, no, 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 no. He sees the prophet, represents who God is, represents the word of the Lord. And, and she, he goes, hey, um, you can give me some bread. Fear. What? I mean, I want you to put yourself in her shoes. You and your child is, you're going through a rough time. There's no food in the land. You see a man of God and he's talking about give me some bread. And you're sitting there like false prophet. <laughs> I rebuke you, Satan. Step thee behind me. You know, that's, that's what you're thinking. She's like, no, can you give me some bread and some water and fear? She's like, man, I'm about to gather up one of my last meals. And right after this, I'm checking out of here. It's been real. I'm dying. She said it. We're going to die. Elijah says, don't be afraid. There's a, there's a principle we see here, right in that moment, and the principle is this. Here's the truth. Faith defeats fear. Fear is real. I'm not minimizing fear. But fear will blind you. It's a real emotion. It will blind you to possibilities. Fear, the emotion of fear, will blind you to the fact that God can provide. The emotion of fear strangles creativity. The emo what fear does, it'll make you think death and loss is inevitable. What fear does, it'll make you feel like a victim. I'm a loser. I'll never get out of this. And, and that can creep in for any one of us. And I don't know how it gets there. Sometimes it's the people around us. Sometimes it's our own thoughts that haunt us. Sometimes for generations, all we've seen is failure and brokenness and poverty. And so all we know is this fear and you're worrisome, and you don't know how things are going to end up. And so now she's letting fear get the final word. And then Elijah gives her the opportunity to let faith get the final word. Fear. To get the understanding of how rich this passage is, is this woman was poor. If you understood that time, widows were almost close to the bottom of the social totem pole. In fact, they, they were dependent upon the charity of the godly community to take care of them. And so in the time of famine, there was no community around her to take care of her. All she had was herself. And then we learn that she has a child. Now, this child wasn't obviously of age to get his own job. Why? Because that child was still dependent upon her starvation was her reality. She's going to get these twigs, again, letting fear strangle all hope from her. She's going. And it says she goes out to the city gates and, and, and what, they would, what most scholars believe is that all the twigs and stuff that were around her area would have been gone by that point and all she had was to go to the city gates. And she runs into this prophet getting ready to die and here is the word of the Lord in the midst of her fear, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home, do as you've said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. Elijah says, the word of the Lord, 
I see your fear. I know you think you're going to die. But what are you going to do in light of my word? And God give you the opportunity to obey in faith. Now she has a decision to make, church. I want you to know something, though, when it comes to poverty and going through it, what they found is that even in our recent day, those that are not necessarily financially well off aren't necessarily the worst givers. In fact, what they found is this, according to the Chronicle in 2012, Fox News reported this truth. It was this, they found that individuals that make between 50 to $75,000 a year annually give an average of 7.6% of their discretionary income to charity. About 7.6%. Why they found people who make $100,000 and more give an average of 4.2% to charity. So I want you to see something though. The issue, and this reinforces the truth we've been sharing through this whole series. The issue is never the fact, do I have the resources? The issue is a matter of the heart. Do I trust this principle of sowing and reaping? Do I trust that God will really provide? It's a principle that goes through, and it's not just a Christian principle. The Bible shows it, but listen, the law of sowing and reaping works in every other way. You do something, you reap something. You sow something, you reap something. It's a, it's a truth of how life works. And now we see that fear comes in. But look how she annihilates her fear. You can't philosophize with fear. How many of you know that? You can't think, I feel fear. I don't feel fear. Fear, you're no longer here. Here, you're no longer fear. Just trying to do a Dr. Seuss rhyme about fear. You can't Dr. Seuss fear. Fear, fear, fear. Be gone, my fear, fear. Everywhere fear. No, one of the main tools to get rid of fear is to step out in faith and don't let fear dictate your faith. And so she annihilates it. She goes, hold on, if God said this, then I'm going to do it. And I want you to know she had every reason not to. She's looking at her son. She's looking at herself. She's looking at this prophet. She's like, what are you talking about? But if you said the word of the Lord, something must have registered with her spirit to say, I know this is the word of the Lord. And sometimes the word of the Lord doesn't make sense. But I don't worry about the how. I just worry about the obedience. I don't know how he's going to do it, but I'm going to obey and this moment and he said trust me it's going to work out faith defeats fear all the time it does you can't speak to me about defeating fear if you never acted out in faith don't tell me I philosophized fear away no you didn't what are your actions telling me about your fear and to be responsible right to be accurate we're talking about resources in this context and I remember when I was in college, I came to faith in college, and the, I, I, I love the fact, let me say this, I wasn't a pastor when I came here, I grew up around here, I, was, I didn't come around, I, all through high school I dibbled and dabbled, I was like, you know, I just knew where the church was, I didn't necessarily attend, I just knew the address, and so... I, and my mom was here, but I wasn't in here. And I, I, I finally just gave my heart to the Lord. And I said, Lord, I just want to learn your truth. And, and money was always like one of those things. I heard so much about the church, about the church at large, capital C, America's church. Everybody's greedy. They just want your money and all that. So I was a little 
well, let me see what this church has to say. One thing I loved about what was preached here, first was the transparency of our income. We, they gave annual reports, all that other stuff. The second thing, though, is that they gave me a privilege. They gave me the opportunity to find out what it's like for sowing and reaping. They did not challenge me just because I was uncomfortable with a topic. And so I remember, I'm like, God, I'm, I'm going to try this out. I'm going to understand this, sowing and reaping. And I was, I was asking, there was a time, opportunity to sow towards a work that the church was doing. And I'm like, all right, God, you know, and I'm in college. You know, how many of you know in college, you're on the broke side of things? Just look, just that extra broke. It's like, it's like <laughs> the bank account just. You know, you know, you know that type of broke where you got to change it. You look upside down, see if it changes. If it look like this, and nothing changes. You ever tried that before? You thought, let me close the app and open it again to see if <laughs> see if this was accurate. And so I was in I was in college at the time, and 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 I said, God, you know what? Your word says you provide seed for the sower. I said I, I remember praying. I said, Lord, give me some seed. Give me some seed. And I want to sow towards, I just want to, I want to sow towards the work of the Lord. Really, I, I believe this is a biblical principle. I don't think they're asking me anything crazy. So it, God must have heard my prayer. I'll lie to you not. During college, I would work at the summers at PC Richard and Son. Shout out to PC Richard and Son. Great appliances. I got my washer dryer there. Thank the Lord Jesus. And my stove and, and refrigerator. So <laughs> I remember I was working there and and the Lord saw fit to have me in this role. And I had left there for a while. And they said, and I get it, I get in the mail. I'll never forget. I forgot that I would work for commission. And when I asked for seat that week, I got a check in the mail from PC Richard and Son. And it's like, they said, it said, Lionel, was a note. You forgot your commission check from a couple months ago. I was like, I pray to Tachistas. I remember I was thinking like, I was thinking, Lord, my man. I would, you know, you have that moment. You're like, God, you really heard, like for real heard me. Because some of us have so much like convoluted theology about God and resources. And, you know, we swing the pendulum. And, thing. and so he heard me. And so in my mind, I knew I was like, oh, God, I'm going to chip you off with this 10%. But everything else, Papa, I need some new clothes. We're good. We're good. I'm, I'm coming there. Right, baby, I'm going to come up in the church like this, worshiping the Lord. Like this. <laughs> and I remember, I knew, look at this. I had the scripture backed up. I knew the plans I had for me. Plans to prosper me. Plans to give me a new wardrobe in the future. And so, and I remember clear as day, the Lord put on my heart, this is your seed you asked to sow. I was like, what? I looked at the devil. We always think the devil's just down there. Like, you better stop sounding like Jesus. No, devil, you better stop it. Then I realized the devil never asks you to do something in obedience to God. There goes all my wardrobe dreams. Down. And I remember the Lord said, I want you to bring this to a certain amount and I want you to sow it. Church, needless to say, God made me a man of God that day. I sowed it the next time. They were like, we're going to have a sowing time. I sowed it. I'll never forget I just sowed it. It wasn't even about receiving at that point. It was simply, God, I just want to obey your word. That was it. Help me to just 
learn what it means to obey. When I showed it, it was phenomenal. This is not an infomercial. Three weeks later, I had a gathering at the house where three times more than what I sown was a gift given to me. And that was the moment God said, why is it you think you can trust me with your vision, with your purpose, with your ethics, but not your finances? He taught me the only way to defeat fear is with faith. And your faith is proven by your actions. So I sowed it. And ever since then, that's where we learn these principles that my belief is going to dictate my behavior. My fear is defeated by faith. And now this last principle where she does it, she, he, God is no respecter of persons. And I, what I learned is this last principle, planting determines reaping. Planting determines reaping. Here's the reality that I've learned about life. Many of us enjoy the reaping, but the planting is the difficult part. No, I knew the hush was going to come over the room as soon as I said. Because the planting is the part that takes the faith. I wondered to myself, what if this widow never obeyed Elijah? Who knows the fate of her, her son and her? Who knows? I don't know. But on the flip side, what if Elijah never challenged the widow? What if Elijah went to the Lord like, dude, she's a widow. She doesn't have anything. She's impoverished, but you're asking me for a gift from her in a time where she's obviously in need. What if he didn't do that? He obeyed God. She obeyed God. And what you see, the fruition of fruit being reaped, the harvest, it said none of them went hungry for the rest of the famine. The whole family and Elijah. And I'm trying to show you this principle. We all want the reaping, but it takes faith to expect that planting is going to get that reaping, church. And I love the fact that as a pastor with these years, we come alongside, we would be remiss, we would be off, we wouldn't be doing godly work if we only came alongside to, to say, we encourage you, I love it, to compassion and emotion and love and walk in faith. But we also need to be biblical when we challenge you to say, would you trust God in this? Because watch how he shows up. And I love the honesty of Psalm 126. One of the things I love about the Psalms is how honest it is. If you read the Psalms, you'll see the honesty of the poets and other writers going through it when it comes to God. Going through their hurt and their pain. And in Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6, it says, We cried, look at this, as we went out to plant our seeds. Now let us celebrate as we bring in the crops. We cried on the way to plant our seeds, but we will celebrate and shout as we bring in the crops. What is it being real about? That crying and planting seed, it speaks of sacrifice, church. It was tough. How many of you know it's tough to make a sacrifice a little bit? And so he's speaking honestly about the sacrifice to say we cried when we went to plant the seed. But we rejoiced when the harvest came, when we reaped. A missionary, he said, I got a better understanding of Psalm 126 
when I was on the mission field in West Africa. His name was Del Tar. He's reporting this back. He served 14 years in West Africa. He said, this is how I knew it came to life. In the Sahel Desert where he was, all the moisture came in a four-month period. It was there May, June, July, and August. That was the only moisture they had was for four months. And then for eight months, they lived off those four months. He said what we would do, and he would stay with villagers, what we would do is that the grain would come and said for a season, this is what we would do. We would eat morning and evening as much as we can depending upon what we had stored up. So they would eat morning and evening. Morning and evening, morning and evening. He said as the, as the time went on, a, somewhat of a, a periodic famine, as we went on, he said the months would go by when it came down to one meal. We would only eat one meal before we went to bed so that we can sleep through the night on a full stomach. He said we would do this for the season. He said and sure enough, he was staying with some villagers and this powerful experience that brought Psalm 126 to life about the weeping when you're planting. He said there was a six or seven year old boy that ran, came running to his father and he said, daddy, daddy, we've got grain. The father would say, son, you know we haven't had grain for weeks. The boy went and says, yes, daddy, we have grain. And now in the hut where we keep the goats, there's a leather sack hanging up on the wall. The boy would say, I reached up and put my hand down there, daddy. There's grain there. Give it to mommy so she can make flour. And tonight our tummies will be full so we can sleep. He said often the father would stay there motionless looking at his son. He said, son, we can't do that. Because what you have in your hand is next year's grain. He said, it's the only thing between us and starvation. We're waiting for the rain, and then we may be able to use it. He said, there, I watched as the months went on, and that father would go with tears in his eyes, looking at his starving family, to take the grain that they could have made into flour. Here's the thing. It would have been suffice for that moment, but they would have died later. He said, but with tears in his eyes, he would sow it into the field during the times of moisture. And when he would sow it, he knew, though it was tough, he was getting ready for a harvest that will sustain them for another year. He said, that's when I got it. That we all want to reap the harvest. But sometimes it meant Sowing in tears with the sacrifice. Church, we could always make a reason or an excuse not to sow. I remember as we were galvanizing the congregation just last year on the next generation for 4RS, we called the movement 4RS, and we said, hey, if you can give above your normal tithes and offerings, because we want to make sure that we're sowing towards the next generation for generations to come. And if you can do that, please feel free to do that. When we have these calls, 
even as a pastor, my family, we're not sidestepping the call. I remember talking to my wife, and we could have thought of so many reasons not to sow in this season. Hey, we, we give, we, we believe in consistent tithing and consistent giving towards the work of the Lord. That's not a question. We're talking about above and beyond that. And we, we could have, we thought of reasons. Look, at the time, there's a couple reasons. One, two words, Sally and May. And then they try to be slick and switch their name to Navient, like one word was going to change it. And so we had the loans. I'm like, I don't know. Here's another reason. My wife was pregnant. She's no longer pregnant. I still look pregnant, but she's no longer pregnant. Our daughter came, and I'm thankful for it. And I remember going, man, I, I, you know, sacrifice, but the Lord dealt with our heart because here's what I've learned about giving, especially above your tithes and offerings. It's not equal giving, but it's equal sacrifice. What's a sacrifice for you, for you to sow? And so we came to this figure in our head to say, we're going to sow that. And I could speak with authority knowing, and I'm sure if I pass this microphone around, I can speak with authority and say, man, when, when it came to provision for our daughter, because honestly, as a young father, as a young, as a young dad, it was my first child, I was thinking about provision for my daughter. We got above and beyond that during the baby shower. There was an outpour pouring out. There were people coming to our house with whole meals when my wife just finished giving birth. There they were coming with meals and showing up and just saying, hey, pastor, we got you. And I'm like, wow, God, I, I wish some of you would come with meals now, but it's okay. And so they would come, wow, God, you are meeting our need in such a significant way. I'm not trying to be slick like we bought God's favor. That's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is God takes care of those individuals who involve him in every aspect of his life. It's not perfectly, you don't buy God's favor. You don't, there's no slick little finagling. God's not a, not a CD account. He doesn't do any of the above. He's not Santa, but he is an individual that he promises I'll provide for all your needs. Just do it my way. Know that I can make you rich. It, it might be time of overflow and times of not so much overflow but know that I can sustain you just trust me just trust me just trust me just trust me and that's what I've learned over time if I don't learn anything else and if you don't learn anything else is to trust God